Welcome to the Auditorium, a portal to the fringes of culture. Well, welcome to the Auditorium Podcast with me, Dr. David Bramwell, and my co-host, Mr. Matfield, who is drinking copious amounts of coffee there. Yeah, 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 that's your, that's yeah. your third cup. Yep, 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 yep. Nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with that. That's fine, that's fine. Mm. Yeah. What's, what's, what's going on? I'm kind of, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm revved up, I'm wired up, I'm ready to go, ready can, to roll, ready to roll. I can see that. You know, I watched a film, I watched, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, Hancock's The Rebel yeah, last he, night. Yeah, where he tries to become an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought, that's me, that's me, that's me. What, Hancock? I Yes, I want to, you know, it's time for me to express myself. I've had enough. I've had enough of... Coffee. You know, the, the, I'm only just beginning with the coffee, you know, I'm going to uh, order another uh, triple, triple espresso soon. But, you know, it's time for me to actually hit the art world. I'm going to become an artist and I, I need something really big, really big, really impressive. Really, oh God, I need the loo. Excuse me. Oh. No. Oh. Oh. Thanks. Uh, right. Well, um, while Dave's at the loo, oh, oh, he's back again. That was oh. that was quick. I've had my inspiration. What, Dave? Uh, what have you got? What have you? What have you done? Oh. That, that's. Oh. That you you. That's a urinal. You've you've pulled yeah. a urinal out of the toilet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's some flooding. It doesn't matter. It's, the important thing is this. This is it. This is my big statement. What? What? A, a urinal? Yes, yes. I'm going to take this urinal, and I'm going to put it. I'm going to put it in a in gallery. In a gallery. Yes. And Dave, that's... Dave, Dave, Dave. What? It's going to blow the art world. No, no one's going to no, have seen anything no, like this. No, it isn't. It's been done before. Shut up. No, no, no. No, no. no it, it's been done. Be... Have you heard of Marcel Duchamp? The chef, yeah, yeah, I've heard of him, I've heard of him. Uh, Marcel Duchamp, the artist, he did it... What? Before 1920, he was putting things like that in the gallery. Oh, you're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. Well, actually, it might not have been Marcel Duchamp. You mean there's a chance for me? No, 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 it might have been someone else who inspired Duchamp to put the fountain in the gallery in the first place. Well, I need to know more about this. Tell me more. Well, I can tell you how. Because our next speaker, the return of the wonderful John Higgs, is going to tell a story that could blow the art world apart about a sexual adventuress called Baroness Elsa, who we may discover was actually the person who inspired Duchamp to create his... What are you doing? Oh, dear. Oh, I'm so, sorry, Dave. Dave. I just, that's not appropriate in the studio. Well, it's a that's urinal, not isn't it? appropriate. It's a urinal. Here's John Higgs. Hello. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this woman here. This is the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. She is a painter, a poet, a performance artist, a sculpture. She's my first New York punk, about 60 years ahead of her time. She was busy in the, the very early start of the 20th century. I've just got to put a bit of context around this, because the, the beginning of the 20th century was incredible, right? The human psyche just slipped a gear. It, it wasn't a gradual evolution, and oh, there's some radical change. It was a massive, massive revolution, not just in visual arts, in everything, right? In science, in politics. It was just unheard of. This was the, the world that Baroness also was working in. She's very much on the cutting edge. She's very much on the avant-garde, this incredible, incredible change. I'm just going to 
to read you a page from this from a new book. To this is how I introduce her in the book. In March 1917, the Philadelphia-based modernist painter George Biddle had a 42-year-old German wo woman as a model. She visited him in his studio, and Biddle told her that he wished to see her naked. The model threw open her scarlet raincoat. Underneath, she was nude, apart from a bra made from two tomato cans and green string. And a small birdcage, housing a sorry-looking canary, which hung around her neck. Her only other items of clothing were a large number of curtain rings, recently stolen from Wanamaker's department store, which covered one arm, and a hat which is decorated with carrots, beets and other vegetables. Poor George Biddle. There he was, thinking that he was the artist and that the woman in front of him, Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven, was his model. With one quick reveal, the Baroness announced that she was the artist and he simply her audience. Then a well-known figure on the New York avant-garde art scene, Baroness Elsa was a performance artist, poet and sculptor. She wore cakes as hats, spoons as earrings, black lipstick and postage stamps as makeup. She lived in abject poverty surrounded by her pet dogs and the, and the mice and rats in her apartment, which she fed and encouraged. She was regularly arrested and incarcerated for offences such as petty theft or public nudity. At a time when societal restrictions on female appearance were only starting to soften, she would shave her head or dye her hair vermilion. This is the First World War, right? This is 1917. A story very, very sort of tragic. She came from uh, Swinemunda in what is now Poland, which was then part of the German Empire. She had a very abusive father. Her mother died of cancer and then her, her father attacked her. She left home and went to live with a, an aunt in Berlin. And Elsa was, as the, as the critics describe it, um, a bit of a sexual adventurer. And she got work as a vaudeville artist and started shagging her way around Berlin, much to the shock of her family, much to the shock of her aunt. She was sort of kicked out and had to make her way in the world. And at this point, she discovered avant-garde art. And from that point on, there was no real difference between her art and her life. And she lived that way permanently for the rest of her life. Into our story comes Marcel uh, Duchamp, the uh, father of conceptual art, a great lover of chess. At one point he gave up being an artist to, to play chess. Very cerebral, uh, very intellectual. The American artist Jasper Johns summed him up well when he said that everything that Duchamp did was to challenge and to deny frames of reference. And we can see this in all his work, his original stuff as a cubist, he was challenging visual frames of reference. But from then on, he was challenging the frames of reference of the art world itself, in which art was considered to be something produced by the genius or the talent of the artist and presented to an audience to appreciate. Everything he did from that point on was chipping away at all these assumptions. He would take pieces of string and just sort of drop them from a height onto a canvas and then glue them where they fell, just to get rid of the idea that any of his talent was in that piece of work. He's most well known for his ready-made, which, which we'll talk about soon, but he's very much the polar opposite of Baroness Elsa. She, all fire and chaos and crazy goodness, he cold and analytical. And she totally falls for him. 
I mean, she totally falls for most people she meets. Uh, her life story is a string of strange marriages, usually to homosexual and impotent men, which never worked out well for some, for, uh, for some reason. At one point in um, 1913, she married Baron... Uh, Leopold von Freytag Loringhoven and managed to get this amazing title that we know her of, Baroness Alpha. But Baron Leopold was just a penniless busboy and who got killed in the First World War. He didn't figure too much in the story. Uh, one of her performance pieces was she, she took a, a review of one of his paintings called Nude Climbing a Staircase and she rubbed it over every part of her naked body, reciting a poem which climaxed with the declaration, Marcel, 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 I love you like hell, Marcel. And my daughter read the book, but I've got a teenage daughter, and all her friends got obsessed with Baroness Elsa. And I was going, oh, why? What is it about it? And she's going, oh, that bit where she does that poem and rubs it over again. We totally get that. <laughs> she was the first fangirl. So Duchamp, however... At the end of the 20th century, 500 art experts were gathered together by the BBC and they said, what is the most influential work of art of the 20th century? And they said this. This is called Fountain. The story behind this is that in 1917, in the, the Society of Independent Artists in New York, uh, they were having an exhibition. And the idea was that anything submitted would be shown. And then this turned up late. And it was challenging them to say, yes, we accept that that's a work of art. And they, they didn't go for it at all. They just threw it away. They just shoved it in the trash. Uh, at which point Duchamp said, well, actually, uh, I, I submitted that. Uh, and I'm, I'm appalled that you could decide what a work of artist. It's up for me as an artist to say what is a work of art. And I quit the society. And it caused this huge, huge stink. Um, uh, which did wonders for his reputation. And it was also the most interesting thing about the entire exhibition. So it was the only thing people remembered was this urinal. You'll see it's signed by a fictitious artist called R. Mutt. It was, a, it was, it was done anonymously. Uh, and this was at the point uh, that World War I was breaking out. But the idea was, this was what Duchamp called a ready-made. This was, this was a term uh, he coined in 1915. Uh, the idea he would just find an object and present it as art. Another one being a snow shovel being a, an, another example. And again, it was just challenging this idea of what art was supposed to be until everything had been sort of discredited and the only thing left was that you could say was art was the idea. This was conceptual art. The idea itself became the thing. And then in the 1920s, Duchamp he wasn't hugely successful at the time. He gave up art. He became a chess player. He dedicated his life to trying to be a great chess master, which he, ne he never really managed. And it's, it's interesting that some people now try and say that by giving up art and playing chess, that was his greatest piece of art. And then I saw an exhibition at the Barbican and they had sheets and sheets of chess notation. They were really trying to push that idea that this was the thing, you know. But time went on, and 30s rolled into the 40s, into the 50s, and the notion that this guy had submitted a urinal was an idea that stuck with people and was impressed with people. And this did wonders for Duchamp's name. And uh, in the 1950s and in the 1960s, he became a real hero to a new generation of, of artists. And a lot of art dealers and things were very keen to speak to him and, you know, work with him. And the problem was, all his great works of art 
uh, he didn't really have any more. You know, they were just thrown away at the time. And they were saying, oh, it's a shame because, you know, if you had something like that shovel, we'd give you all this money for it. And he was like, does it have to be the exact shovel? I could probably find a few more shovels. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. So the, the fountain, the urinal, you know, he's done over, over a dozen anyway, maybe 17, which you'd get another urinal and write Armut 1917 on it and give it to a private collector or a gallery for a large amount of money. And all the galleries have to put it in a perspex case because it soon became clear that art students wanted to engage with the art by urinating in it. And so, so Duchamp becomes this great hero of 20th century art. Dies famous, uh, successful in 1968. And in 1982, they found a letter he wrote in 1917 to his sister Suzanne. And in that letter, he says, a female friend of mine has sent me a urinal to submit to this exhibition, which I'm going to do. It's going to be done under this assumed name, Richard Mutt. And then people started to investigate. And, and the story was that he'd got this urinal from, I think, J.L. Mott's Ironworks on Fifth Avenue. And they went away and researched. And no, J.L. Mott's uh, Ironworks on Fifth Avenue didn't stock that type of urinal at the time, which is a bit of a smoking gun. But at the same time, all these galleries, you know, they had Duchamp's. You know, they didn't really want to take this any further. They really didn't want to follow it up. Uh, and so it was just sort of left, this strange, strange fact, until a, a Canadian academic called Irene Gamel became interested in this figure who was otherwise missing from 20th century arts, Baroness Elsa von freytag Loringhoven. And there had been an, one attempt to write a biography of her which was never finished or published but she kept appearing in all the key players of the time in, all, in journal entries in diary, diary entries uh, this names kept appearing and you get these fragmentary sort of snapshots of, the, of this, this mysterious character so uh, Irene Gamble started collecting all this up and, and working on uh, a biography of Baroness Elsa and, and putting the story of who she was together and it turned out that the whole thing about ready-mades was something she was doing before Duchamp. Now, she didn't intellectualise it. She didn't come up with the name ready-made. She didn't sort of explain it or anything. But she was always doing it. This is, she precisely found a piece of wood and called it cathedral. And a lot of all her stuff, um, she'll take a really base object and give it a, a religious or an archetypal or a symbolic name. This is called God. It's a plumber's trap, she found, and decided it was God. And for many years, it was assumed that this was the work of an artist called uh, Morton Schamberg. It's now known that it's not. It's now known that it was Baroness Elsa. Morton Schamberg helped her stick it to a piece of wood. But the whole idea of getting a plumber's trap and calling it God was very much Baroness Elsa. And it sort of fits in with a lot of her work. This cross-pollination between uh, the taboo and the divine goes back to her, her childhood. Her mother was very religious, and her father was very mocking of this. And when her mother would go about her daily prayers, he would always say, oh, she's going for a daily toilet. He'd always compare religion with toilets and, and things like that. And this runs through a lot of her work. And it's a real trickster hallmark this mixing of the taboo and the divine and it's that I think that's more than anything is what makes the case that Fountain 
was Baroness Elsa's work so compelling? There's loads of little extraneous details. That R Mutt written on the side in 1917, that's a joke in German. R Mutt means poverty or intellectual poverty. And at the point when America was going into the First World War and the artist world was making sort of no statement. The artwork was just being utterly useless about this global conflation that's sort of blaring up. Uh, writing poverty or intellectual poverty was very much the sort of, of thing she would do. And I'm going to defend Duchamp in the idea, from the idea that he just ripped off the unknown female artist. Because we're more knowledgeable now uh, about the way memory works and about the way our memory of 40 years ago um, is pretty much something we sort of construct on the fly compared to what actually happened. They are, you, this is why when bands, they can never agree with who wrote the chorus to their, their best song, especially when there's a, a creative atmosphere and there's ideas flowing around. No one can really remember what idea came from. Um, it's modelled mathematically, this. It's called uh, the Ebbinghaus curve of forgetting. It basically means that everything you can think of from 30 plus years ago might be true. It might be something you've just, a narrative you've just weaved up yourself. And he did, he did um, if Baroness Elsa, because she was in Philadelphia, and the story was Richard Mutt was in Philadelphia, and she clearly sent him this thing, and he put it in himself, and then he resigned, and so he got all these people asking about that uh, urinal and um, that he put it in and be talking a lot about it. It's not inconceivable to me that he didn't actually, after 40 years, think, oh yeah, no, I just, that was just Baroness Elsa's, wasn't it? But the art world, right, the art world definitely had this very, very strong anti-female thing. People like Baroness Elsa just didn't figure in it. They just they was, were ignored. You'll find the, there was a modernist magazine called The Little Review, which Baroness Elsa put a lot of her poetry in. It was a very cutting-edge thing. Uh, and it also uh, printed James Joyce's Ulysses in, in sections. And that was what caused the obscenity trial. Ulysses was deemed obscene, and so there was this huge trial to see whether it was art or just filth. You have to work quite hard to work out that Ulysses is obscene. You know, it's not, it's not obvious. You just It takes a lot of effort to sort of get your head around, oh, yeah, it is a little bit obscene. Whereas in the same issues, there's these poems by Baroness Elsa, which, you know, you know straight away where she's coming from. They were clearly obscene, but they were just ignored. You know, James Joyce was the man. He was the... The way the art world just ignored female artists for the 20th century, is mainly why she disappeared. This is why I think it's good to talk about her. I don't want people to think that, oh, Baroness Elsa, she's interesting because she was the one who really did that thing that Duchamp took the credit for. It's more, Baroness Elsa was just great. She just totally rocked. I mean, she made no sense at all at the time. Right? She was too far ahead of the curve. But now she's someone we can really appreciate. I talk about it in this book, um, which I was waving around earlier. And it's a book about the 20th century, making sense of the 20th century. And I'd written a couple of other books. I did, first, I did one about Timothy Leary. And when I was researching that, I sort of was surprised by how much that the uh, Silicon Valley computer culture 
came out of the hippie 60s and 70s. I'd never realised that, but there's a reason Silicon Valley is exactly where it was. It was in the heartland of the psychedelic sort of world. And I hadn't sort of realised how much the psychedelic thing came out of, out of the beats and, and things like that. So it was quite an education into how the 20th century was sort of stitching together all these seemingly unrelated things. Then I wrote a book about the KLF, and much to my surprise, writing that, it just became apparent the period around 1994 was far stranger than I'd ever realised. It was, it was a real turning point in many places. So the idea became, well, I should understand this period, this 20th century. It's the period we know most about, but it's this, I get the impression we don't kind of get it. So I sort of looked at it, and the, the most immediate thing you notice is that up until the 20th century, you know, everything pretty much makes sense. All the great innovations and discoveries, we get them, you know, it's like electricity, you know, democracy, photography, agriculture. They're not scary to us. We got our heads around them. We know what they are. We don't know the details, but we know that we're not scared by the fact that steam engines exist. We, we sort of get the gist. Then you hit the 20th century. And you get Einstein, and you get relativity, and you get cubism, and you get quantum mechanics, and you get all the all modernism, and, and, and you get existentialism, and you get psychedelia, and you get chaos maths, and you, and you get um, uh, postmodernism. And all these things are just things you go, oh, Jesus, no, they're just really off-putting. They're really, ugh. You know, maybe I'll just sit this one out and wait for more... <laughs> things I can understand to come on. I understand why, you know, I did that myself, but it means that we're sort of looking at the 21st century through 19th century eyes. I'm wondering why it doesn't make any damn sense. So the whole point of this book was to sort of get our heads around the 20th century. Unfortunately, all those horrible, scary things I just mentioned make far more sense when you look at them together because there is a single sort of key that sort of unlocks them all. And that key is about the idea of absolutes and rejecting absolutes and, and trying to take on multiple perspectives. It's what Duchamp and Baroness Elsa were up to with these attempts to destroy frames of reference. The 20th century was about realising that all our frames of reference were arbitrary and then trying to have to deal with them. And from that, we stopped thinking for our, as ourselves in terms of you know, the know-your-place hierarchy. This was a world of emperors and, and things at the start. To individualism came. I kind of sort of assumed the story of the 20th century was really the rise of individualism because certainly if you look at most books about the 20th century, they're written by uh, politicians mainly or political journalists or very politically minded historians such as Eric Hobsbawm. And they all sort of take the view that um, it was politicians that shaped these hundred years. It was politicians that, that created them. And that really isn't the case in the 20th century. But if you look at politics at the end of the 20th century, this idea of the individual as the single touchstone for understanding ourselves is rife. It sort of came in with Thatcher, the no such thing as uh, society sort of idea of individualism. But it was kind of more interesting that come the second half of the 20th century, all the great discoveries, all the great innovations were veering away from that. It was as if politics has just taken too long to catch up. I have, once we had, you know, chaos mathematics and, and, and environmentalism and, and, you know, the internet and all these things, which were all ways of understanding that ourselves as an individual doesn't explain us. You know, we have to look 
more than an individual to get a sense of ourselves. And in the, the, the Labour Party um, leadership run-up at the, at the moment, you can see the Blairites are still stuck to this thing. It's like, no, we're individuals, no such thing as society. You have to view the individual first and their desire to get on, and that's how we want to go. But the younger generation who didn't grow up in the 20th century, see things in a, in a very sort of different light. A good example is um, selfies, right? You know, I, I was born in 1971. I'm, I'm, I'm a person of the 20th century. When I see someone taking a selfie, my immediate reaction is, oh, that's a bit vain. That's a person taking a photo of themselves to look at themselves. That's how you automatically think of it. But of course, to my kids, that's not at all. A photo is taken to strengthen bonds in a network. They're smiling at their friends. It's a wink to their friends. It's a social thing. It only exists to be shared. And that's a very different way of understanding the world. So that's the gist of this book. And it was reviewed by History Today, I think it was. They said, um, uh, it's not the great man theory of history. The great man theory of history is how a lot of people used to look at history. It's what great men did. And, and that's obviously not acceptable these days. You know, all looked down on for obvious reasons. He said, what this book is, it's the strange person theory of history. It's all these strange people. I love that because... When things are changing at the very, very edges, when things are very, very, you know, utterly, utterly radical, the people surfing those points do appear utterly nuts to everyone else because they have cakes on their head and, and things like this. But it's through these people, it's through these, these radical scientists and artists and, and thinkers and cultural uh, mathematicians even that point the way to where we are now. So I, th I think we should remember Baroness Elsa, as I say, as not just someone who's ripped off by, by Marcel Duchamp, but as just a, a total hero who, who pointed the way. <laughs> So that was John Higgs there with the story of the Baroness and the urinal. And mm. Dave and I joined in the studio today by one of our producers, Lance Dan. Lance, you're here because you, you're you an art expert, an art fan. Yeah. Uh, I made a documentary about Fluxus, which is Ooh. the 1960s <laughs> art movement. Uh, that what was that called again? Fluxus? You have to say Fluxus. There was a man called Machunas. Steve Machunas, well, the, the famous bowler. No, no, it's George Machunas, who was a, right, right. a Lithuanian artist in the 60s. And they were really influenced by um, Duchamp. And there's this complete tie from between Fluxus and contemporary art. Oh, OK. Because there was a phase in the, the 60s when everyone went around and signed everything. Because basically you could sign things and sort of claim them as yours. That like, was chairs, real. chairs, I'll Mine have now. chairs. Yeah, right. Exactly, this sort of platonic idea of like, OK, I'll own chairs. Like tagging, basically, isn't it? Yeah, it was, actually. Yeah. It was artistic tagging. And there was a great artist called Vautier who... Um, Cabaret Vautier. The band. No, it's an artist in uh, Nice. Well, it was Ben Volivant, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and he ended the game by signing a, a table tennis ball. And uh, the idea was that because God is omnipresent, he's inside this table tennis ball, and therefore he's signed God, and therefore he owns everything, and therefore everything was a Ben Vautier artwork. Smart yeah. ass. But it isn't, though, is it? It's just, you've got people like Coons. Going, Tony Coons. Well, the famous estate agent. No, Jeff Coons. Jeff Coons. Jeff Coons going around buying basketballs and putting them in big piles and, and putting them in galleries. You know, it still goes on. It's rubbish, though, isn't it? There's nothing new in this whole idea of found objects, really. I don't, you know, I, I don't think 
Certainly the, the concept of, of a factory, that goes back to Van Dyke. Did Van Dyke? Well, the actor. No, no. Yeah, no he, he's the actor in Mary Poppins. Wasn't yeah, 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 yeah. No, Van Dyke, the, the, the portraitist. He, he, came to, he came to Britain. He was already enormously rich and famous. And he came to Britain sailing down the Thames in a great big bling barge. And he set up in the, the most expensive uh, apartments in London. People would come to him for one hour, for which they would pay an enormous amount. He would sketch them for one hour. Then he would give the sketch to his acolytes, who would paint it up. He would come in, put a few touches on and sign it. Bob's your uncle. He was the richest artist in the world at the time, enormously wealthy, just through this conveyor belt system, you know, which is essentially what found art lets you do, I guess. You know, you can go, right, well, if I get 10 basketballs and sign them, that's it. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm cutting out the middleman mm -hmm. of making anything. My favourite sort of... Art, art punk statement, I think, isn't isn't even of this century, isn't even of the last century, it's 400 years ago. Done. Clive, Clive Dunn. Dunn? No, not Clive Dunn, not Grandad. No, uh, John Dunn, the famous metaphysical poet. Oh, yeah, him. See, when he was dying, he um, had an artist commissioned to draw him as he was dying, facing the sun, curled up in a shroud. And then he commissioned... Well, after his death, he commissioned uh, the artist to take that to a sculptor who sculpted it into a um, memorial, which is in uh, St. Paul's uh, Cathedral. And that's pretty that's pretty hardcore using your own dying image mm. as as your you know, and it really is quite uncompromising to go and look at it. And you think, wow, that, you know, that sort of knocks most sort of Hearst statements into a cocked hat, doesn't it, about mm. mortality? And it's amazing to look at. You Once you see it, you never forget it. It's extraordinary. I'm, I must say, I feel a bit out of my depth with this with this conversation. But I've, I've got, I picked up from a, a jumble cell the other day a lovely, really lovely picture of a white horse running through running through the water uh, at sort of moonlit with sort of wind blowing in its hair and I put it up above uh, <laughs> above my above my fireplace it's 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 beautiful that to me is is that's, is, art. that's quality yeah, art I know what I like I, I've got a beautiful one of a lady who's a really strange bluish tinge to her skin she looks sort of um, I like that one I like that one like from yeah. sort of got, Star Trek I like, some people don't think so but I think photography is an art form too and I got a picture of a um, tennis player a woman walking away from a camera and she's just, just scratching like, her bum I know that picture that is I know that picture it's, re it's beautifully lit it's, it's so really good. nice it's the composition really well done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's cheeky as well it's it is cheeky. cheeky literally yeah. cheeky yeah, yeah, do you know yeah. what this has given me this has given me new fire I'm feeling like you know all this talk about art. I think I can, I can, I can still do it. I can still become. Dodo, the Duchamp thing. It's, it's, it's been, it's been done. Y you yeah. say, you yeah, know, allegedly. I know, yeah. but I'm going in a new direction. I'm, I'm thinking, oh. oral art. I'm going to create, if you like, a musician, but I can't play an instrument. So I'm going for something. This is going to blow the whole art world away. It's, it's a piece. I'm going to start it now. Here it is. It's called One yeah. Minute Twenty Seven Seconds of Silence. Go. Mm. Yeah, that's good, those noises, that's good. Dave. Yeah? It's been done before. It has, actually. Brilliant, brilliant, that's all part of it. That's nice. What? You saying that, that's great. That's that's part of the whole thing. That's lovely. That's part of the, the, the art. That's, that's been done. That's, no, it's... no, look, no, no, that's great. Look, Dave, Dave the, you're saying, listen to the extraneous sounds. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's been... It's been done it's before. Been done. It was done by Cage. Yeah, but no one's done this. What? Cage did this. Cage Nicholas did this. Cage. Yes, Nicholas yes. Cage. After leaving Las Vegas. He yeah, did. he did this. God, he's he got so this. many talents. That he guy. Really has. Unbelievable. I mean, I'm really angry, but I, I do love him. You know, he's brilliant. He's an Elvis impersonator as well. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
But well, so look, this is. You know. I, but I think this is. I'm. This is still different to whatever he. I think I'm going to sign it. I'm going. How do I sign? I'm going to sign silence. I'm going to sign the air. I'm going to sign the air because that's still. It's on the molecules in the air. You know, quantum theory and all that. So I'm signing the air now. Dave, there. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm signing over your signature. I own it now. You. Well, that's how the art world works. <sighs> Andrew, what are you doing? What's here? Andrew doing? I've just signed the whole podcast. What? He signed the podcast. What does mm-hmm. that? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we're his podcast now. Well, so all the money that we make from his podcast well, now, Andrew, gets millions of quid. Yeah, well, just you like can't that. Sell it. That's no it. That's it. I'm, I'm not home. doing it. I'm not doing it. Anymore. Forget it then. Forget it. If we're going to be Andrew's podcast. I'm going home. <sighs> yeah. Enjoy. Enjoy, Andrew. Yeah. The Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mailing. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com, where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. Talks from the Auditorium are featured in Earnest Journal, a magazine for the curious and adventurous. If you like the Auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. Guys? Oh, oh. Hey, fellas. Hey, no, no one's here. Uh, it's me, Nicholas Cage. I, uh, I'm here because I'm kind of like a leading light in the, the world of uh, serialism and musical uh, oral innovation you know uh-huh uh kind of feel there's been a, like a copyright infringement of uh my artistic innovation so uh i'm gonna kind of sign the whole podcast huh oh there you go rock and roll baby it's all mine <laughs>